Hello, Chun. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks for having mm-hmm. me on your podcast. No, no, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, this is Kotatsu from Stage Fright, and yeah, I'm very honored to have you here. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I understand you're a software developer who dabbles a lot in developing for the Bitcoin protocol. Yes, I am. I've been doing it for about two years now. Uh, I started making my contributions uh, in open source generally much longer, but um, mm-hmm. Bitcoin specifically, I think most of my contributions have been made within the last two years. Okay, cool. So uh, I'd like to start off with one simple question. Right? Um, do you think Bitcoin is a privacy coin? I think so, yes. Bitcoin is mm-hmm. a privacy coin. Mm, okay, could you elaborate a bit? So, um, I tend to see privacy from its perspective of, um, you know, when we talk about privacy, I think a lot of people think that privacy is the same thing as anonymity, but um, not necessarily the same. With mm-hmm. anonymity, you are um, you're hidden. So even with people who you interact with, they don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but with privacy, you have selective, um, you reveal yourself selectively. So mm-hmm. you want a system whereby you can reveal yourself to your counterparty and only your counterparty. So mm-hmm. when we talk about the ability for you to make payments or for you to be able to carry out transactions, you really should only concern yourself with the person you are carrying on that transaction with your counterparty, right? Mm-hmm. And nobody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bitcoin actually allows you to do that. Um, but there are lots of ways in which you can use Bitcoin in which it can damage your privacy. And mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get to discuss um, some of those ways and how you can avoid them. Mm, okay, then let's just do it now. Uh, what is the worst way a person could use Bitcoin from a privacy perspective? From a privacy perspective, I think the worst way you can use Bitcoin is a concept called address reuse. Um, This is where you tend to use the same Bitcoin address with every person that you transact with. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you have 20 different people that you transact with, whether you are receiving payments from them or you're making payments to them, and all you're doing is using the same Bitcoin address then it's easy for any of those uh, counterparty of yours to be able to see all your transactions. Uh, they can even deduce patterns from um, you know all the transactions that you've made. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> naturally, the Bitcoin, pri- the Bitcoin blockchain is transparent. And transparent in the sense that because of the goals of having a global uh, public ledger, it is necessary that all transactions are in the open. So Mm. you can see transactions going from one address to the other. And so if you transact with someone and you tend to reuse the same address all the time, um, your counterparty can take that address, put it on any public block explorer, and then Mm -hmm. they can see all the transactions that you've carried out. Mm. Now, I think you would agree with me that you don't necessarily want someone doing that and seeing yeah, all your transactions. Um, 
And so this is the major way through which people actually kind of destroy their privacy uh, when they reuse Bitcoin addresses um, for every transaction that they do. Okay, cool. Uh, now, so, so on the opposite side of the spectrum, mm -hmm. um, how would a person use Bitcoin privately? What is, what is the best thing or the first thing they would need to do? So um, there are lots of things you could do, but if we said that the major way through which people damage their privacy when using Bitcoin is through address reuse, then it's only natural that the way you should use Bitcoin then should be to not reuse addresses. And what do we mean by that? Well, what that just generally means is that whenever you are receiving Bitcoin from someone, even if it's the same person that you've transacted with, you mm -hmm. should always use an address that hasn't been used before. Now, the good thing about most Bitcoin wallets is that they can track an unlimited number of, like virtually an unlimited number of addresses. Mm -hmm. And so there is really no, you're not actually um, saving anyone anything by mm -hmm. reusing an address. Bitcoin transactions are not, are not based on an account system. So there's no, oh, this is my, you know, people have this general idea like Bitcoin is like a bank account. And so mm -hmm. whenever you give your bank account or your PayPal address to someone, it's always the same ID that you use. Although mm -hmm. Bitcoin will not stop you from doing that, um, it doesn't work on that model. There's no Bitcoin bank account. There's no Bitcoin account. Um, what you have are inputs and outputs. So mm -hmm. even if you've transacted with the same address, say, for example, you received 50 different payments on the same address, you don't have one balance. Mm -hmm. You have 50 different unspent outputs that you could use uh, in constructing a future transaction. Yeah. So whether it's the same address or you use 50 unique addresses for all those payments, it's the same thing where the system is concerned. So there's no okay. advantage for you using the same address whenever you want to receive payments, um, even if it's with the same person. You should always use a fresh address that has not been used before. So it's not, oh, I used, I have these 10 addresses. And mm -hmm. so I keep rotating them. No, it's not about rotation. It's about generate a new fresh address and then use that for that new transaction. Mm -hmm. Cool stuff. So then now talking about um, addresses and, or receiving and sending transactions, I think the other thing is that, well, your wallet is one part of the equation and then we get the nodes that actually broadcast these transactions that go out. And I'd like right. to know then from a privacy perspective, is running a node a hard requirement or a soft requirement? Um, so I think when it comes to privacy, there are, um, there are different ways in which you can, you have to look at it from perspective of what's the most I can do. Um, mm -hmm. so there are different layers to it. Um, the first thing we've mentioned is stop reusing addresses. Now, if mm -hmm. you stopped using, reusing addresses, you would have improved your privacy significantly. Now, mm -hmm. if you want to start taking it higher levels beyond that, 
um, mm. you get to a point where, okay, if you're looking for ultimate privacy, um, you have to start considering running your own full node. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand why is that, why is it that, re, why is it a requirement that if you want the best form of privacy that Bitcoin has to offer, that you have to run your own node? Well, we have to look at how um, transactions are eff effectively propagated on the Bitcoin network. Now, mm -hmm. if you're using a light client and you're connecting to a central um, server in order to submit your Bitcoin transactions to the network, um, mm -hmm. what then happens is that this central node, if they are malicious, um, they could correlate all your Bitcoin transactions to you. Mm -hmm. Now, you're obviously connecting from a computer or some computing device. And mm -hmm. on the internet, every computing device has a unique IP address. And mm -hmm. so it is possible for that central service to look at, even despite the fact that you're not reusing addresses, um, mm -hmm. they could say, oh, I saw a transaction from this IP address with this address. I saw another one with this other address. And over the time of the reuse of your wallet, they could look at all the transactions that you've done emanating from that same IP address and they can correlate all of them and see, mm -hmm. uh, we have a very strong uh, degree of confidence that all these addresses and all these transactions uh, were carried out by the same entity, right? Uh, and so mm -hmm. um, that becomes a, a risk factor in improving your privacy. And so mm -hmm. when you run a full node, um, because every full node on the internet uh, operates on this gossip network. How, how, how does that work? When your node first hears about a transaction, um, if, you know, so usually they, there's this gossip protocol whereby I hear about a transaction, um, I tell my other peers about that transaction. So mm -hmm. I keep a copy because, oh, this is the first time I've heard about this transaction. I've never heard of it before, but it looks valid. Uh, of course, your full node would have validated those uh, that transaction based on the rules that it has is in, in its own um, in, stored within it, then it will now tell its other connected peers. Um, mm -hmm. And so because it's constantly doing this, not only for its own transactions, but for transactions belonging to other people, um, it's very difficult for you to correlate. How do I know that this transaction actually emanated from this node and it's not just one other transaction that is being relayed from that mm -hmm. node. And mm -hmm. so this significantly improves your privacy because um, nope. if your node is always online, you are relaying transactions coming from one peer to your other peers and um, you create your own transaction and you add it to the mix, mm -hmm. there's really no way for you to actually kind of isolate a particular transaction and say, this belongs to this particular node. And okay. this is one of the reasons why running a full node actually gives you a significant amount of privacy um, beyond just, um, you know, not reusing addresses. In terms of broadcasting your transactions, um, you also gain a, uh, an added um, advantage in terms of privacy when you run a full node. Okay. So basically, from um, what you're saying, just to summarize, the mm -hmm. goal with using Bitcoin is to reduce the number of uh, third parties involved in your transaction. Yes, so it's it's reducing the uh, amount of third parties, unauthorized third parties, that 
uh, are able to link a transaction to your person. Um, no. No, like I said, all transactions are public. Um, mm -hmm. But when transactions actually start, and, you know, here's the thing about Bitcoin transactions. For a very long time, the Bitcoin community thought that um, pseudonymity was the same thing as anonymity, right? And the reason mm -hmm. is because Bitcoin addresses, by their very nature, are not tied to a person's identity. Um, mm -hmm. You generate a random number, and from that random number, you generate a Bitcoin address. There is no, you don't register that random number with your identity and say, uh, this particular Bitcoin address belongs to Tim, or this particular Bitcoin address belongs to Mary. No, you don't, mm -hmm. the Bitcoin protocol doesn't work that way. However, mm. um, you have a lot of um, blockchain surveillance companies that are trying to break that pseudonymity. And so they're trying to correlate um, these Bitcoin transactions with certain heuristics, like, um, like I mentioned with um, running a full node. If you have these transactions coming from the same IP address, they could infer that that particular IP address is the owner of that particular transaction. Um, mm -hmm. And so... Um, what you're trying to do in terms of improving your privacy is that you want to be able to create a Bitcoin transaction and you want to be able to do it in such a manner that it's very difficult for a third party who is not authorized to be able to uh, create a link uh, mm -hmm. between your own real world identity and a particular transaction that happened on the Bitcoin blockchain. Cool, nice stuff. So um, basically, it's the whole major argument: trusted third parties are security holes. Correct. Okay. Cool. So um, one other aspect I actually wanted to talk about, right, is then well, well as you're saying, the public uh, Bitcoin public key address is just there, and people can only link you to it if you broadcast the fact that this address is mine. How is it that Satoshi Nakamoto basically used Bitcoin for a number of years and people still can't, or people didn't trace it back to his actual identity? So, um, remember we started out by the fact that Bitcoin can be used privately. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that the major way people dox themselves when it comes mm -hmm. to um, Bitcoin transactions is, like you just mentioned, trusted mm -hmm. third parties. Um, the moment you open an account with a Bitcoin exchange mm -hmm. and you identify yourself um, through, mm -hmm. you know, all the necessary KYC and all that, um, that is not to say that that is bad in itself. However, you have some of these exchanges that work with some of these blockchain surveillance companies that mm -hmm. then use um, all that KYC information to tie your transactions on the blockchain with your identity. And how is mm -hmm. that done? Uh, well, whenever you're going to transact with the exchange, you're going to deposit funds on the exchange. Now, the exchange was the one that generated an address for you to send the funds to. And so it is assumed that any funds you sent to that address, um, the funds must have come from a wallet that you control. 
Mm-hmm. Also, when you make a withdrawal from the exchange, you're withdrawing, it's assumed that you're withdrawing the funds to a wallet address that belongs to you. So mm-hmm. what is blockchain surveillance companies now do is that they use a bunch of heuristics to kind of observe the flows of our funds from these addresses that they have, you know, certainty that uh, are linked to identity. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they try to create um, these graphs of uh, transactions and addresses to try and like uh, cluster addresses into identities, right? Mm-hmm. So um, as at the time when Satoshi actually was using Bitcoin, there weren't exchanges, right? Um, yeah. Nobody knows Satoshi's real identity to this very day. So mm-hmm. he could have, um, you know, if he actually signed up with an exchange, it will have been so obvious who Satoshi is. And mm-hmm. I mean, you have people who knows who who know who know who's um, uh, they know what particular coins belong to Satoshi, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because they just by looking at the transactions on the blockchain and looking at all the blocks that were mined prior to when Bitcoin was um, beginning to be adopted, it's obvious that we know, you know, with a certain high degree of confidence that these addresses mm-hmm. must have belonged to Satoshi. Now, mm-hmm. fortunately for us, um, those coins have yet to move, right? So mm-hmm. we have roughly about a million Bitcoins sitting in addresses thought to belong to Satoshi that have not moved ever since um, those funds got in there. And Mm -hmm. because those coins have not moved, it's almost nearly impossible for you to, as a matter of fact, even infer relationships. So you can Mm -hmm. tell, for example, that, oh, um, Satoshi transacted with, I mean, we all know that Satoshi transacted with Halfini, but we don't know any other person whom, yeah, maybe there are other people whom he transacted with. Mm-hmm. Um, but those people don't know his identity. Um, uh, but imagine for example, that we were, um, carrying out a transaction together mm-hmm. and you are signed up with an exchange and I send coins to you and then you send those coins to an exchange. Well, the exchange can actually look two steps back and can tell mm-hmm. that the coins that you sent to the exchange were actually gotten from an address, uh, and, well, we might not be able to tell who was that person, but we know that if we come to you and we ask you, we we notice that on so-so-so day at so-so-so time you transacted with some individual. Um, mm-hmm. We need to know who that person is. Well, if you were actually subjected at going points to reveal my identity, you might actually do that, and that might actually also end up doxing me as well. Um, okay. So... That would never happen with Satoshi because um, nobody ever knew who he really was, right? So even mm-hmm. if you put a gun to, uh, you know, one of the people who transacted with him back in 2009, um, you still wouldn't be able to know who he was or mm-hmm. who they were or who she was. Okay, cool. Um, the whole put a gun to a person's head is actually something else then, which... Uh, forms like a bigger part to the whole Bitcoin privacy argument, like the whole mm-hmm. $5 range problem. Yeah. Um, like no matter how well you secure your wallets and stuff, if someone knows that you have a huge chunk of Bitcoin, 
at some point you become a very attractive uh, target, which is I think why most Bitcoin exchanges get hacked or initially or why they would get hacked because they had so much Bitcoin on the, the platform that any hacker uh, who could uh, hack them found it hard not to hack them because hmm. uh, they just had so, so much Bitcoin on them. And then now this translates back to the individual. Mm -hmm. There are people who are whales in the space. Uh, and now they have this huge chunk of Bitcoin and they're doing their best to not uh, make their identity known that, oh, this uh, specific cluster of Bitcoin belongs to me because yeah. once that happens, then yeah, they better have bodyguards protecting them from the whole factor uh, range problem where they move these coins into this address or you are getting shot right now or mm -hmm. getting tortured to actually move that. And yeah. I find it interesting because I was, uh, I was thinking about it earlier this week and I'm like, wealthy people are not new to the world. You know, uh, uh, people have been rich for decades, mm -hmm. uh, of, for centuries actually, even uh, starting from when gold became a thing and kings and queens and stuff like that. But Bitcoin has the unique property where a person can put the majority of their wealth behind a mnemonic seed. Mm -hmm. And it, it, due to its liquidity and how easy it is to move these coins, I don't think there has ever been a um, monetary asset that has been this easy to move and this liquid at the same time, where, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if you, it getting moved is just one transaction that, that gets settled in approximately 10 minutes. And that really makes uh, uh, keeping Bitcoin privacy uh, way harder than it actually is to, to this day. So there are, you know, people say that there are two roles to Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. The first role is that you always talk about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And the second rule is you never talk about your Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think um, it's for the reasons that you've stated where you have this monetary asset that um, is incredibly liquid and mm -hmm. has the ability to teleport from one region of the globe to another in seconds. Um, mm -hmm. it, it creates... An, it's also a bearer instrument. So if it's stolen from you, um, that's the end. There is no authority that you can go to for redress. Um, mm -hmm. The coins are stolen and they're stolen, right? Mm -hmm. um, we've had lots of cases uh, involving um, things like um, ransomware where people actually, you know, their data or, um, you know, some private information of theirs is held mm -hmm. to ransom until they pay the ransom, right? And it's turned out to be very, very effective for um, these criminals who engage in this activity um, for it to be very, very lucrative for them because mm -hmm. um, it, 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 you're dealing with an asset that guarantees a, an extreme level of ownership 
with whoever mm-hmm. is the bearer of the assets. Um, and so when it comes to uh, individuals who are looking to store their wealth in such an instrument, it, it actually requires a lot more uh, responsibility from them to in order to protect this asset. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, this whole mantra behind you never talk about your Bitcoin, um, it goes a long way because um, it doesn't even matter how much you have, right? Mm-hmm. Any amount of Bitcoin is, is too much. Uh, yeah. Because you're dealing with an asset that could uh, be worth a lot in future. So it doesn't matter if today you're bragging with um, your $1,000 investment in Bitcoin. Um, who knows what it's going to be worth in 10 years? Um, that mm-hmm. particular statement that you put out on social media um, mm-hmm. now becomes something that you regret because now the whole world knows that you have this amount of Bitcoin. Um, and so you effectively put a target on your back whenever you mm-hmm. you go about doing this. Um, so when we talk about you protecting your privacy, um, besides the fact that you're, you're trying to protect your privacy on-chain, um, you also have to protect your privacy. And some of these social attacks could also be vectors through which you um, one person could actually get attacked. And so mm-hmm. I think it's also important that um, people exercise um, some level of um, uh, situational awareness uh, when it comes to how they talk on social media or on public forums in general. Um, mm-hmm. You, you want to be sure because um, if you're in a situation where um, you are attacked physically um, because of the knowledge that they know that you have a specific amount of Bitcoin, it's going to be difficult for you to get uh, away from, uh, with it. Um, so there's something in you mm-hmm. know, called plausible deniability, where mm-hmm. if you don't know how many Bitcoins I have, um, there's no way for you to prove that I haven't, if if I happen to be attacked, there's no way you can prove that the amount of Bitcoin that I cl- I'm now claiming to have um, mm-hmm. is not all that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, it also works the other way too, because I can't prove that the amount of Bitcoin that I, I can't prove the amount of Bitcoin I don't have, right? Mm-hmm. There's, I can't prove that I don't have Bitcoin, but I can prove that I have, right? Mm-hmm. So if someone puts a gun to my head or someone, you know, at gunpoint, you're told that you have to reveal your keys and um, you reveal, you know, maybe you have this wallet that actually has uh, a small portion of your Bitcoin holdings, and that after a lot of pressure, you give in and you reveal that, there's no way for the attacker to know that you don't have more than that. Mm-hmm. Unless, you know, there has been other information that has uh, been leaked online or that you have personally revealed about yourself that gives them that, no, I expect that this person should have between this amount and this amount of Bitcoin, right? And this so basically, that is what they're going to be working with. Basically, donation and questions. Uh, that is correct. Um, but you see, the thing is, over the course of the years, it is possible, except there are addresses that can be tied directly to your identity. Maybe, like you mentioned, donation addresses. If I put those donation, if I put that donation address online and I see that you have ten Bitcoin in it, then I have all certainty that you have that amount. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can't deny that you don't have access to that. But again, you have people receiving Bitcoin, spending Bitcoin. And so, you know, unless you actually have addresses that you can directly correlate to a person's uh, identity, um, you can't really tell for sure how much Bitcoin a person has um, okay. without, um, you know, doing a lot of extra work in trying to figure out um, which addresses actually belongs to this person's wallet. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, man. Interesting stuff. Um, I think Bitcoin privacy is a really tough topic because ultimately privacy, uh, personal privacy is also a tough to- topic. So mm-hmm. one can only go so far with uh, improving their own personal privacy. But one thing I like about about Bitcoin, it actually leads a person to increasing their total level of personal privacy. And all the advocates for better Bitcoin privacy practices end up with better personal privacy practices because you can't have one without the other. Uh, And so, yeah, uh, everyone should just practice some Bitcoin privacy so that they can have better mm, personal privacy. So yeah, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so, um, you know, we've mentioned um, at least two different ways in which you can improve your um, privacy when it comes to how you use Bitcoin. Um, Mm -hmm. There are also numerous other techniques. And usually when you're trying to improve your Bitcoin privacy, um, you have to be aware of the actors who are working against your attaining this privacy. And I mentioned mm-hmm. the fact that you have blockchain surveillance companies that are consistently trying to break um, uh, users' anonymity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are several other techniques, for example, um, and these are more of the advanced um, techniques that uh, you can employ in trying to improve your privacy. Um, so for us to actually understand how these techniques actually work, uh, we need to understand how Bitcoin transactions themselves uh, are created. Mm-hmm. Uh, every Bitcoin transaction is made up of inputs and outputs. Mm-hmm. The inputs uh, are kind of like the uh, coins that you have in your wallet. So think about when you want to make a cash transaction. Yeah. Uh, let's say it is a... Um, so we're talking about uh, the South African rand, for example. And let's yeah. say you want to make a 25 rand transaction. Mm-hmm. Now, depending on the denomination of notes you have and coins you have in your wallet, you are going to create a transaction by adding up all these notes and coins to make up at least uh, that amount. Um, when you're doing cash transactions, a lot of times you have to make change. Um, because Mm -hmm. the amount you have is slightly bigger than what you want to pay for. So when you make that payment, uh, you receive change back um, Mm -hmm. for that payment. Uh, Bitcoin transactions are exactly the same way. Um, Whenever you have coins or outputs, unspent outputs in your wallet, and you want to make a payment, um, your wallet will add up all these coins as inputs in that transaction. Uh, They will make an output for the payment, 
and also make an output for the change. So that mm-hmm. change comes back to your wallet and then you can spend it in a future transaction. Now, when you look at how those uh, transactions are created, it looks as though for every transaction, all the inputs are created by the same entity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so as we know, for example, if I am spending cash, um, if we were to look at that transaction and it was public information, uh, it's obvious that all the cash came from one person, right? And yeah. depending on the amount, if we see, oh, we know that usually rounded amounts are like, um, so let's say it's a 24 rand and, um, you know, what's what's the uh, the smaller denomination? The Like if we had something like 24.99, what would the oh. 0.99 be called? Mm, I don't think you don't know. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, that small portion, let's say that. Yeah, let's call it cents, okay. right? So mm-hmm. we have 24 rand and 99 cents. Um, mm-hmm. The one cent change that gets added back, we know that, oh, that's obviously a change. We know that that's mm-hmm. changed. So we, want, we, we would guess that that 24.99 rand output is the actual payment. Now, you have a lot of these um, blockchain surveillance companies that are looking at these heuristics and are coming up with guesses on how uh, these addresses are actually controlled. And so when they look at a particular regular transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain, um, it looks as though all the inputs belong to the same person. So Mm -hmm. I can then trace back from the outputs and say, okay, this output I'm sure was paid into by Tim, right? So if I look at that transaction, I look at all the inputs, maybe there are 15 inputs. I know that all those, I can guess that all those 15 inputs came from a wallet controlled by Tim. Now I can even start looking backwards and saying, okay, where did these 15 inputs come from? Or they came from these 15 individual transactions. And I can start Mm -hmm. tracing back and trying to form um, an idea of all the addresses um, in Tim's wallet. So mm-hmm. I use these techniques to kind of like form a cluster of addresses that to a high degree of probability belongs to Tim. Yeah. Um, and so when you have this kind of uh, heuristics, and to a large extent, they're true, um, but it's not necessarily always true. And this is where we now start looking at all the techniques on, on how you can improve your privacy uh, when it comes to how you use Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those techniques is called coin join. Okay. And with a coin join transaction, you are trying to thwart um, these heuristics by creating a transaction in which you're not only the participant, but you have other participants joining their own inputs into your transaction um, to make it look as though all those inputs came from you. Now, mm-hmm. it's like if you have a, um, a, a a bowl of beads, right? And all these beads are effectively the same. Um, if I take a new bead and I put that bead in the bowl and I mix the bowl, and I tell mm-hmm. you, pick the particular bead that I put into this bowl. Now, because all the beads look exactly alike, it's an impossible task for you to do. You can't... Yeah 
speak with certainty and say, this is the particular bid that you put in. And with Bitcoin, I could have put five bids. I could have put 10 into a bowl of 100. You don't know the number of bids I put in. And you don't know the particular bids that I put in. So it's at that particular point, um, you can automate a system to uh, de-anonymize or try and um, you know filter out which particular imputes that I actually made. So mm -hmm. with Bitcoin, you can actually create a transaction, um, put in imputes that belong to other people, sign yours, and have others sign. And as far as the blockchain is concerned, it is still one transaction. But now you can't tell how many participants were actually involved in that transaction. And so you break that heuristic, and we call it in, uh, you know, in Bitcoin privacy parlance, we call it the common input um, ownership heuristic. So it's this whole heuristic whereby we assume that all the inputs are owned by the same person. Um, but with coin joints, you break that particular heuristic because uh, you can't make that assumption anymore that all the inputs are owned by the same individual. And so when you actually create coin joint transactions, um, you're able to mix your inputs with others and you break that heuristic. So it makes it impossible for this blockchain surveillance companies to be able to go further than that. Um, with a lot of the coin joint implementations, um, they not only just make it possible for you to um, create transactions that are coin joint transactions, but you could actually start out, say, for example, I, I bought Bitcoin from a KYC exchange that works with a, a blockchain surveillance company. When I withdraw that coin, I know that the company knows what the address I withdrew the coin to. But what I mm -hmm. do subsequently is I now subject that particular coin to a series of coin joint transactions to obfuscate um, where eventually the coins end up. So maybe it's, okay, I'm going to have this coin go through a, a series of five coin joint transactions or 10 coin joint transactions. And through all those different hops, you're constantly just breaking um, that link between Yes, we know that you withdrew to this address, but they can't tell where the coins eventually ended up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we talk about the fact that Bitcoin transactions are censorship resistant. And this is the truth from a protocol perspective. But what we've noticed with um, a lot of wallet services and exchanges is that um, they try to... Uh, make it difficult for you to use Bitcoin in a censorship-resistant way. And what do I mean mm -hmm. by that? Um, whatever excuse is it that they, they give for, um, for doing those practices, they tend to um, you know, try and figure out several hops down the line where those coins end up. If someone decides that, you know, I want to buy Bitcoin and I want to use Bitcoin to gamble on some sites and... For some reason, that goes against the policy of the exchange that I'm buying my coins on. Um, because they can actually trace where you're you know, spending your coins to, uh, it makes it impossible for you to use Bitcoin in a censorship-resistant way. You're being censored. Um, uh, someone is telling you that you can't make this particular kind of transaction. And mm -hmm. this goes against uh, the whole idea of Bitcoin in, in the sense that you should be allowed to make whatever transaction 
that um, you deem as being appropriate. It's the same mm-hmm. thing with speech. If we if we say that we we support the idea of freedom of speech, where people are allowed to speak their mind about societal issues and um, not be afraid of uh, having repercussions as a result mm-hmm. of that speech. The same thing should also apply with transactions as well. Um, mm-hmm. As it's a form of expression, it's a form of speech. And so if we agree that uh, we should protect people's rights to uh, 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 speech, then we should also do the same too when it comes to uh, the ability to do transactions. Um, and so coin joins are uh, one of those techniques through which you can actually obfuscate um, how coins actually end up being spent. Um, it's a privacy technique. And if we had more people actually doing coin joins, Bitcoin will become so private that blockchain surveillance companies will totally give up trying to trace any transactions because what's the point? It's completely useless. Um, and then there's another technique, and this one is actually even more interesting in the sense that um, the thing about coin joint transactions is that you can easily detect them on the blockchain. You can look at a transaction and, you know, um, a, a common uh, blockchain explorer, for example, uh, blockstream.info, um, it does have this privacy heuristics that it can tell you what kind of privacy techniques were used in uh, a particular transaction. Mm-hmm. And it's actually able to also tell if a particular transaction is a coin joint transaction or looks like a coin joint transaction. And, and so um, you can easily tell that a particular transaction is a coin joint transaction. However, there is a new technique, um, not really new, but it, it's gaining popularity and a dump of wallets or uh, merchant payment systems are, be, are beginning to implement it. It's called pay join. Mm. Um, so when you do a transaction in a coin join manner, you are effectively mixing your coins with n number of third parties. And um, this could range anywhere from three, four, five, to even higher numbers, 50, 100, right? Um, but when you're doing a pay join, you are effectively making a payment to just one person, but that person is also joining their own independent imputes with your, with your transaction. Mm. So I want to make a payment to you. And so I create a transaction that pays you, right? So you have your funds and whether or not we engage in a pay join um, would not deny you of that payment. Okay. So you receive the payment and then what you do is you now add one of your inputs to the transaction. Now, the inputs will effectively be paid back to you, okay? But the whole idea is that, remember, we talked about this common input ownership heuristic, is that now you can't really tell. um, If you try to do this whole wallet clustering thing, because of that pay join, we have effectively merged our, our clusters. So you have this system that will fold you know blockchain surveillance systems into thinking that my own wallet is the same as your wallet because we engage in a transaction where both of our inputs were involved mm-hmm. now imagine you as a merchant you're doing pay join with me 
you're doing pay join with your other customers. Maybe you have 100 other customers. <laughs> Do you know what eventually happens is that all our wallet clusters now become merged into one. So we now have a wallet cluster of 100 different wallets that according to this blockchain surveillance companies is the same wallet. Mm-hmm. Now that completely breaks that heuristic again because now they can't reliably say with any degree of certainty that this so-called normal looking transaction is actually made up by one two. or two participants. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that this can be a very, very effective technique in creating transactions that look like every other day transaction. But um, it has this added benefit of confusing blockchain surveillance companies and their algorithms into not being able to you know, tell a pay joint transaction from a regular transaction on chain. And so if you have more people actually doing pay joint transactions, and I actually see that within the next couple of months, um, we're going to start seeing a lot more wallets. I, I know, for example, that um, Blue Wallet uh, recently also added that feature. Um, so mm-hmm. it would actually uh, propose a, coin, a, a pay joint transaction if the recipient actually supports it. So I think oh. we're going to be seeing more of, and, and there's a lot of research going into Bitcoin privacy, and uh, we'll be seeing a lot more of this uh, privacy techniques being implemented to restore Bitcoin fungibility and uh, make Bitcoin private for people to use. Uh, remember, privacy is not about, um, it's not about hiding illegal dates. It's about selectively revealing um, information to third parties. So I should cool. be given the right to choose who I want to select, who I want to reveal the purpose of this transaction to. Um, I shouldn't have some third party elsewhere breaking my anonymity and and you know being able to 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 tell what it is that I'm spending money on or where I'm getting my money from or how I spend my money. Um, without my permission. Cool. All right, Michael, uh, thank you very much for this conversation. Uh, I think from a time perspective, we ran uh, quite long, uh, but I think there's quite a lot of stuff we have to discuss uh, that we probably can't fit into one episode. So I think I'm going to have to call you again one day and then continue this magnificent conversation. I, I look forward to, to having another um, session mm. with you. Cool, man. Um, thank you very much for sharing the knowledge. It's been my pleasure. Cool. Uh, till we talk again. All right. Later. <laughs>